you know, forgiveness, it's, you know, I never, I would never tell somebody to forgive the rapist, right? It's too strong of a word yeah. to apply to, but maybe understanding them, mm-hmm. you know, would, would help, help you let go. Yeah. Right. Maybe but, they were raped. Sorry to interrupt no, you. I might okay. be talking too much, but like a lot of, especially men who are guilty of abusing children, almost, you know, I think it, this last study I read 80 to 90% were abused as children themselves. Mm. So you have to ask yourself, yeah. like, is that just coincidence? Like, they're not just all of a sudden choosing to do it. Part of their trauma and their inability to deal with it is affecting their future yeah. behavior. So if we could help people be more open with their trauma, I think we could, we could ease some suffering. For sure. I am Najwa Zabian. Welcome to Stories of the Soul, the podcast. Each one of us has a story. I believe that the most powerful story you can tell is your own story. In this podcast, I bring you the stories of people you meet every day. Everyone around you has a story beyond what you see, a story that is soul deep. Just as you can learn from someone's story, there are lessons to be learned from your own. Just like someone rose after their fall, so can you. And just as someone is owning their healing as they've owned their pain, so can you. There is always a story beneath the surface. There is always a story of the soul. Let's walk this journey together as we tell the stories of our souls. The theme of the first season is forgiveness. Hello, my loves. I hope you're all well. Welcome to episode six of Stories of the Soul. In this episode, you will listen to my interview with Philip. Philip Millar is a criminal defense lawyer. You might be wondering, or might not be wondering, why is Nejwa interviewing a lawyer? Before you judge the content of this interview, let me tell you that it was one of the most powerful interviews I've ever done. Ever. You might not be going through a legal battle right now, but I guarantee you that at some point in your life, you felt that you could not get closure and went about trying to get it in some way. This is what this interview is about for me. Sometimes people struggle so much with closure, with forgiving the past, that they go about any way to get back what they believe they deserve. This happens many times in marriages, for example. Once it comes to an end, many people struggle with letting go and forgiving without feeling that they gave someone so much of themselves. And some people turn to being vindictive, to wanting revenge. I see all of that as forms of not being able to channel their pain and hurt in a healthy way. And I'm sure all of us have gone through this at some point where we felt that we wanted either revenge of some sort or closure of some sort or wanting to prove something to someone of some sort. And we all deal with it differently. When we think of the justice system, many people just don't even want to go there. It sounds complicated, scary, and just hard to talk about sometimes. But for many, it's their only way of fighting for their rights. Philip is one of the most determined people I know. I consider him to be the best of the best in terms of truly doing the right thing for his client and fighting vehemently on their behalf. 
Having gone through and experienced myself of being bullied by someone legally, I know that having the right person to fight for you is what makes or breaks how your case goes. You need someone who not only believes you, but who also believes in you. During my experience with Philip, not once did I not feel empowered. I always felt that my voice mattered and that I was being given the stage to raise my voice and tell my truth. I once heard someone talk about their law school years and how they felt that there was definitely an undertone of letting go of your values because your job is not to live by your values. Your job is to defend your client and give them the right to a fair judgment under the law. It's definitely very hard to find lawyers who will be honest with you about the reality of your case, especially if that honesty entails that you need to just not pursue legal action. A lawyer would be basically turning away a potential client because they believe that it's in their best interest not to move forward. That takes integrity. And not enough people in the world have that, to be honest. Philip has that. And that's why I chose him to talk about this topic. I wanted to get his input on forgiveness from a legal perspective. I will start with a poem from The Nectar of Pain that I believe is relevant here. It's page 276. Forgive them. Not because they asked for your forgiveness, or because they deserve it, or because the pain they caused you is not worth it, but because you cannot truly move on without forgiving. It shows your level of maturity and your ability to understand that life is not always fair and that someone's behavior speaks of them, not you. Your forgiveness speaks of you, not them. I thought that I needed your apology to move on. I really needed to forgive myself. I find this relevant here because... When you're going through a legal battle, it's very easy to fall into the trap of defining your worthiness of letting go without getting the final verdict. It's easy to lose yourself in what that final word is. It's kind of like, have you ever worked on a project for school or work and put your whole heart, time and energy into it and then when you handed it in, you got a terrible mark? This happened to me before many times, and believe me, I was the hardest on myself. It's easy to say that whole work was not worth it because the mark didn't reflect it. But is that really the case? You could have been doing a million other things that were not productive, but you chose to put your whole self into this. Of course, the amount of time and energy that you put in added to your life somehow. Plus, if another teacher or supervisor looked at that final outcome, they may have given you a completely different mark or evaluation. It's just that that one person didn't think it was great. We can draw parallels here to the legal system. Different judges will see different cases differently. It might have a bearing on the outcome, of course. But does that mean that if the outcome is not in your favor, that that's the actual truth? Ask yourself that question. When you're thinking back to that example about a project, for example, if you were to perceive it as something that taught you a skill of some sort or helped you learn something about yourself or helped you discover a passion of yours, then it's not a waste of time. The end result doesn't matter. 
it doesn't matter any more than what you allow it to matter. Okay. I remember in second or third year university, we had to take a course where we had to identify about 60 to 70 different types of birds only based on their pictures. And we had to know everything about them based on just seeing one picture. And I remember thinking to myself, why am I even taking this course? Like there is no, what is it adding to my life? It's just wasting my time and wasting my energy. At first, that's what I thought. But then after a while, I realized that it helped me pick up on details and it helped me pay attention to things that I wouldn't normally pay attention to. So even though I don't remember any of the things that I memorized today from that course, probably didn't even remember them the day after my final exam, this taught me that I have the ability to notice certain details and I have different ways of, of memorizing them and different ways of making sense of them. Anyway, back to our topic, we can draw parallels between the legal system and everyday life. For example, when you tell someone that you love them and they don't say it back or don't feel it back, you evaluate your worth based on that response. Instead of reminding yourself not to take it personally, instead of reminding yourself that maybe it's just not meant to be, or that they are not ready, or that they are afraid, etc., you evaluate the value of yourself and the value of your love based on what they feel. Is that fair? And is it true? Absolutely not. So when we look at the legal system, waiting for an outcome is sometimes the closure that we are looking for. And it's so dangerous to do that. After a process of who knows how many months or years, you cannot be hanging your well-being on one final outcome. I can tell you from personal experience, I have been let down that way, not once, but multiple times. And it would have been easy for me to believe that the outcome had to override my truth. Not easy as in easy. Easy as in, I trust that power is always right. But I know that power is not always right. Power is not always used justly. And sometimes it only serves to protect those already in positions of power instead of protecting the vulnerable. I will share my story with the legal system in a separate episode one day because it is a very sensitive subject and I have to be emotionally ready to talk about it. But I can tell you the heartache I went through at every letdown. And I know for a fact that the pain was not fully about feeling let down, but about me allowing myself to question my truth, my worth, everything I experienced. It drives you crazy to have someone tell you that never happened when you know for a fact that it did, when you know for a fact that you lost sleep for several nights because of it. The point is not just related to the legal system. The point is related to our own conviction in our own truth. When you allow someone, anyone, to tell you what you experienced, when you clearly know and have lived your experience, that's allowing them to rewrite your story. And that is wrong. You have to be confident enough to not question your own experience, your own truth. I have to be careful with the way that I say this. You have to try your best to not allow someone's overriding of your truth to not make you question your truth. And even if you do allow them to make you question your truth, 
take the right steps to go back from that. I did question my own truth for a long, long time. Trust me. It is like hell. It felt like the worst form of torture, and I don't wish it upon anyone. How did I go about this? I sought therapy. I shared what happened with me in full openness. I cried a lot and spoke about all of my worst fears. And in the process, I felt like I was opening up to truths about myself that I wasn't aware I believed about myself. Probably the most dangerous thing I realized was that I genuinely believed that I had no power. That unless I pleased someone or got someone's approval, that I was not okay. It's like my whole worth was dependent on someone approving. I was terrified of speaking my own mind, asking for my own needs. Needs. What does that even mean? Like I had no awareness that I had the right to have my own needs. It took a long time for me to start giving myself the right to believe my own truth without needing anyone's validation but my own. I hope this poem helps. This is from Sparks of Phoenix. If I am not worth your apology, you are not worth me carrying the pain that you caused me. So I will forgive you, not for you, but for me. I deserve to let go. I deserve to be free of your pain. And if you can't admit your own mistakes, I will not allow the ashes that your pain turned me into to hold me hostage. Here's another one. I do not want you to apologize. I do not want you to be sorry that I felt that way. I want you to be sorry for what you did, to feel sorry for making me feel the way that you did. Here's another one. You will stay in ashes if you base your rising on their apology. And the last one is, I will not thank you for this pain. I will not thank you for this destruction. But I thank you for this lesson. My demolition might not be in my hands, but my reconstruction is. In this episode with Philip, we go into forgiveness from a legal perspective. And we dive into relationships, parenthood, and forgiveness in general. There were some beautiful moments of forgiveness in here that I couldn't help but tear up as I was listening to them. You're going to love this interview and learn so much from it. Here is Philip's story. I really wanted to talk to you because it's always been fascinating to me to look at people's journeys when they struggle with forgiveness and you know from personal experience i found that people take different roads to reach that end and from a legal perspective i just it's always been fascinating so i want to just hear about everything you have to say about that everything, I everything. Say <laughs> yeah. well you know i teach kids to say sorry i think that's a good starting yeah. point but i think in the context of what you're asking me based on my background you know, I was kind of forged in a in a military context mm-hmm. as a young man, and so I had to go into operational theaters where I saw some bad things. And um, I think I was I was very effective at seeing. And I think forgiveness sometimes seems like too non powerful of a word. And I, I think where you're going is that it can be a powerful wor- word. And when I thought about this interview, in the context of some of the overseas operations I did, it, it was essentially the lack of forgiveness that actually perpetuated the conflict. So when I was in the Balkans, 
just former Republic of Yugoslavia, you had Serbs, Croatians, and Muslims all living together. Now, if you do a DNA test on them, they're all the same. Yeah. It's just that political influences forced the Muslims to go back to Turkey and come back Muslims, and the Croatians became Catholic because of German influence and the Serbs. But before the war in 1992, Yugoslavia was one of the most progressive countries in the Soviet Union. They had passports, they lived together, they called themselves Yugoslavs, they were intermarried, and there was a low attendance at uh, religious services. Mm -hmm. Once the war started and the first atrocities happened, the lack of forgiveness perpetuated um, people moving away from each other. Mm -hmm. And then they started, they started looking for ways to identify themselves as that victim group. Mm -hmm. And then so by, by labeling yourself as a victim group, yeah. it justified hitting back. And then all of a sudden when you have 10 different hitting backs, across all three dynamics, now you'll never be able to figure out who's right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And you'll never be able to tell one group they're right and wrong because there's just been so many cross harms. And I think this happens in relationships. Yeah. Uh, and so when I went into that theater, I was like, how do I get these people who are such good, peaceful people to stop killing each other and bombing, killing kids? And it's that lack, I'm glad we're doing this because I never really thought about it this way, but. I just remember being a young man saying like, guys, like, when, when do you stop? Like, how do you stop? They're like, well, they did this. I'm like, and so how do they forgive as a culture, mm -hmm. as a human? And if an individual tried to forgive, mm -hmm. then they were ostracized by their group and sometimes killed. Yes. So then everybody had to get into the pack, that wolf pack of anger, mm -hmm. right? And then it was just a stronger, uh, so that, that hit me. And so I think when I left the military and ended up becoming a lawyer, even though the profession of law is coined as adversarial, mm -hmm. which I think by definition doesn't really involve forgiveness. A unique approach to, to being a lawyer because I had seen uh, the negative impact of not forgiving. And so when people came in and saw, saw me and they were like, hey, Philip, I need to sue this person. Yeah. They were angry, but sometimes I think I saw in them that inability to forgive was gonna make both parties suffer. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so even though people think that you know I'm hard you know, mean military guy, in my approach to law, I'm often like, hey, let's, let's avoid fighting unless it's absolutely necessary yeah. and encourage people to forgive. Did you view it that way before you were part of the military? Or was that like a... Before I was in the military, I was just a young, you know, 22 year old who didn't really know much about the world and just wanted to go do exciting things. But yeah. I think by studying and, and investing in relationships with people, I just, when you see that much despair I think if you're a sensitive human, like you look for a way to try and fix it, that doesn't involve just, you know, more guns or blowing more mm -hmm. stuff up. Uh, yeah. So tell me about a story. Like you have probably, how many clients have you had over the years? <laughs> Thousands. Tell me about a story where forgiveness somehow showed up and it either inspired you or made you pause and think. Yeah, no, I, have a, I think I have a couple. I'll give you one context of a client who I didn't let them hire me, uh, which is a touching story um, that I still tell my junior lawyers. I had a, a professional engineer come into my mm -hmm. office and he was very upset he had heard that I could help him out. And he literally came in with a signed check to my firm. There was $50,000 and he slapped it on the table. You know, and that's a significant amount of money. Yes. And this was back when I was the business was starting, so it had more of an impact than, than it would now. And he's like, I need to sue my former employer. He laid all this stuff out. He had, and I could just sense this, this anger. And mm -hmm. he had been wronged. 
he had been wronged by his former employer. And he laid it out why he was wronged and why is this. And then I took the time, I had a master's in culture and I could just see he was angry. So I just took the time and I'd spoken to a lot of hostile people in my life. So I took the time to find out actually what was he upset about. And he was upset that his ability to provide for his family was at risk. But then when we looked at his business, he left a giant engineering company that had unlimited legal resources, mm -hmm. right? And so they ended up constructively, yeah, and they ended up kind <laughs> yeah. of moving him out. And then he was starting his own company and he was angry at what they had did. He wanted to sue them for wrongful dismissal and he wanted to make them pay and do all yeah. of this stuff. And, uh, but when I dug down into it, I was like, look, your business sounds pretty good. He's like, yeah, it's, it's doing good. He goes, but these bees, you know, I want to make them pay and yeah. here's this, go do it. And I just said to him, I'm like, look, the anger that you're holding for your former employer is real, but it's going to consume you, right? And you can, just like I will consume that $50,000. But in the end, all it's going to do is occupy your headspace. So you've got a great business growing. And if you get into this lawsuit, 60% of your mind is going to be constantly thinking about getting revenge and payback, yeah. right? But your mind is beautifully suited to run this business. And I said, from what I can tell, your company is too big to deal with how good you are at your business. I said, so I don't know if I said forgive them, but I, I kind of essentially I said, take the power away from them by yeah. letting go. And I guess that's forgiveness too, yes, kind of, of course. right? Yeah. You don't have to say, I know you're a good person, but just you know, they did it for their reasons, mm -hmm. accept it and move on. Mm -hmm. And I had this long talk with him and I took this $50,000 back. I said, look, I'm not taking it. Put that money into your business. Go home and tell your wife that you're going to go run this business and you're not going to let these guys get into your head and interfere with your relationships and just hurt your health because I can tell people like you. Like I could tell a small, and I knew he would be successful. And then he left and I said, but if you want to talk to somebody else, it's fine. And then two months later, I have, I'm getting chills thinking about it. He came in and he gave me an invitation to his house, which was not far from here. Mm -hmm. And he said, just come to my house. I want to like introduce you to some people. Yeah. He didn't even tell me why. He came there, his whole family was there and they had like a little party and they were crying and they just said, Aww. thank you so much because his business was killing it. Yeah. And he cried and his wife cried and they just completely ignored that company. Mm -hmm. And he grew a very successful business. We had like, a, and I shared, I think from his culture, because it's from from India, sharing food together was like his yeah. way of thanking and bringing me into the yeah. family. So I, I think that's one of the few cases where I can say that forgiveness played a great role. In, and lawyers have to remember that it's not about taking money so that we make money. It's about actually helping people yeah. be happy. And sometimes that means do not get lawyers involved. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things that I admire about you and part of the reason why I wanted to interview you, because I know that you do things for the right reason. So what, how do you define forgiveness? There is no right way and every person defines it differently, but how do you define it? Because we just talked about like letting go, moving on, not giving them power. You know, letting go seems like the simple thing, but I think in order to be able to forgive, you have to be able to understand. Mm -hmm. At a simple level, understand that. I think the lower spectrum of forgiveness is forgiving in that you realize that carrying the anger is not beneficial. Yeah as you move up kind of the spectrum of, of, of enlightenment, I think forgiveness is understanding that the person who wronged you probably had been wronged many times, mm -hmm. you know, and is a victim of so many other injustices that led them to this behavior. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think like enlightened forgiveness is understanding that people are not necessarily out to get you. Our own ego wants to make it feel like everything people are doing is because they want to, and really it's because they have all these other things going on in their mm -hmm. life. And so if you take your self less seriously, it's often easier to move on with your life. Mm -hmm. 
How do you balance between holding someone accountable as a lawyer mm -hmm. and representing them? Mm -hmm. Like, well, it comes. You know, I say there's a, a few reasons why you can do a lawsuit for justice, yeah. right? For vengeance, or for compensation if you've lost money, right? Yes. And people often come with one that's predominant. And when I talk to people, I'm like, look, you can do a lawsuit for vengeance. And you mentioned it. When you have deep pockets, you can make somebody pay. This happens in divorce all the time. Mm -hmm. If there's a divorce going on and one of, the, one of the parties has wealthier parents or more money, they can hire a lawyer and just try to ruin Keep the other fighting. person's yeah. life, right? That's mm -hmm. vengeance, right? It's not justice. It's just, I have more money than you and I'm going to make you pay for not loving me anymore or mm -hmm. for something like that. That's not helpful. What's your view on that? It's not because healthy. a lot, many of my audience, a big portion, mm -hmm. is into relationships. Yeah. And well, that's one of the reasons why we opened up a, a family law department. Mm -hmm. Just, I had been asked to do it many times. I just realized that if I use some of my skill sets, I could make people angrier yeah. and therefore get more money from them. Yeah. But it's it's not. It, it wasn't in their best interest, especially when there's children, right? So I find we find ourselves often telling people in divorces, like, look, don't use lawyers. Like, sort it out. It's simple. People are allowed to fall out of love, mm -hmm. split the assets, and move on. But it's a business. So if somebody says, no, I, I need this, you know, well, I've taken cases where I didn't think it was the right thing to take cases. And there's a couple times I was probably wrong. I should have taken them. But vengeance is different than justice, right? And then when you have somebody who's been abused or who is at, on a power imbalance and... Um, and somebody is deliberately taking advantage of them and trying to hurt them, sometimes the only way to get justice is to hold them accountable. And that's when you need to get into a lawsuit with somebody who will actually fight and believe in it. Mm -hmm. So there are definitely times, and that's, you know, our philosophy is that when it's time to get to go to trial, we go to trial. And usually we yeah. feel very powerful that, that justice is on our side. And then money always comes into it because in our, our system is flawed. It's still one of the best ones in the world, but you know, how do you compensate for being harmed? If mm. you know, we represent a lot of victims of sexual assault. You know, how do you put a dollar figure? Is on there rate? a place for pain in the justice system? Yeah, well, it's called pain and suffering, yeah. right? But in Canada, unlike the states, we're capped. So pain and suffering is capped really at about three or four hundred thousand. So I've represented kids who have been raped by priests, you know, a hundred times, mm. and their general damages for like a nine-year-old boy who is, you know anally raped by a priest a hundred times was capped at $350,000. Where they got money was, well, that damage that they suffered prevented them from getting good jobs. And so we could, we could make the number higher. But in Canada, one of the reasons, I think one of the things the system here suffers from is that that number is not high enough. But it's just arbitrary. How do you put a number on it? Some people suffer and recover faster. Some people have a smaller harm and yeah. never recover. Yeah. And so how do you put a number on it? That's kind of the shell game that we play. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, but it, it's not easy. And I'm all, I always struggle with like, how do you, how do I argue that, you know, somebody should get this amount for being raped? Mm -hmm. You know, it's easier if it's a car accident and your leg's broken. Yeah. You know, we can say, okay, a broken leg, you know, 150,000 mm -hmm. bucks. Like if someone suffered with trauma, for example, mm -hmm. after the experience and they've had to go through therapy and it's affected their yeah. life in certain ways. Is there a way to connect all of that? Yeah, well, in the settlements, right, we'll put in, you know, future care costs. Mm -hmm. So if you have, if somebody has been traumatized and we're advocating for them, we'll say, okay, you're going to pay this much for general suffering, pain and suffering, and then you're going to pay this much for future care costs, which would be rehab counseling. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of, you can factor that in so I can get them like $50,000 so they can go to counseling for the next 10 years, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Does it work? You know, 
it'd be nice if if more of the counseling because counselors in some cases suffer the same thing as lawyers right yeah they want repeat clients mm -hmm. right i think if there was more of a focus and i try to help clients when they come in the lawsuit can be uh, cathartic or therapeutic because often the people come in they haven't had a voice they've been wrong they don't have a voice they feel powerless you know everybody is telling them what to do they know what to do and it, you know it's a brave step to say okay look i'm going to have a voice now yeah. And so that is part of the process. And so some might say that's adversarial or attack you for bringing a lawsuit. But I'd say, no, this is not the case. This is you getting your voice back. Somebody mm -hmm. took it from you. So don't tell somebody, don't let somebody tell you not to have your voice. We'll yeah. stand up and scream in a mountain yeah. that that was wrong. Yes. And we're going to hold them accountable. And often that, that empowerment, so they get their voice back. Finally, they, the, their claim is validated. The perpetrator, as we know, sometimes falls apart and we win and it's it's that empowerment i think that allows for forgiveness because it's hard to forgive when you when you when you're powerless i guess the strongest people could but it's when you get your feet back under you and you have your voice that now you can see hey that guy's really just pathetic power, where does it come from the power what the power that you stand on does it come from people or from yourself well, it's a combination of, of all of them, depending on the situation. But we've all been in that situation. We've been hiding from behavior we need to take. Mm -hmm. And as long as we're kind of hiding and, not, and not, not making that move, we can't have that power. So I've seen it many, many times where a victim, a survivor, people's... I, I just say victim because I'm not interested in terms. And I yeah. think our society is way too worried about terms yeah. and not offending people. Yes. I'm just yeah. interested in justice. But mm -hmm. when they kind of turn that corner and say, look, I'm not going to hide it anymore. Because there's social pressures, family, yeah. school, community. I represent people in small communities. Mm -hmm. As an aside, it might be interesting to your viewers, but there's a, there, I have a client, mm -hmm. wonderful lady, a mom, and she was uh, drugged and raped by her teacher mm -hmm. you know, at a, at, a young, yeah. at a young age, like just mm -hmm. out of school. She reported it to the police. This was a few years ago, and the police back then didn't do a good enough job, and uh, they didn't charge him. So she, she just dealt with this, yeah. right? And then when she came and I spoke to her and I convinced her, no, I didn't convince her, but I spoke to her. I said, look, this guy raped you, right? They found drugs in your system the yeah. next day, right? Why you didn't consent. Well, I think they might be now. Okay, So it, good. Anyhow, it's confidential. <laughs> she um, was updated. <laughs> uh, but my, my counsel to her was, if this guy did it to you, I know he's done it to 10 others, yeah. right? And so part of you standing up and owning it is, is naming him. Mm -hmm. Because what it would do would help other women who would probably think they're alone come forward. And I'm just showcasing this as how family can, can evolve, but she is a very kind person, so she told her son she was gonna do this. And her sons convinced her not to do it, oh, to keep it quiet because they didn't want their families to be mm -hmm. disrupted, which you can understand, mm -hmm. but, and that's what I mean, like sometimes families can get in the way, yeah. culture can get in the way, people who are telling you what to do that's really yeah. self-interested. Because I know for her it would have been great. I know that she, her eyes lit up at the prospect of finally letting all of that hidden, hidden whatever out, naming this guy who's been walking around like he's king of the hill for 10 years, right? Uh, I know she wanted to and it's really sad that she didn't do it, but you know, we're still going to go to court and I'm still going to destroy this man for what he did to her. Yes. And hopefully some others will come forward. But, mm -hmm. you know, forgiveness, it's, you know, I never, I would never tell somebody to forgive the rapist, right? It's too strong of a word yeah. to apply to, but maybe understanding them, mm -hmm. you know, would, would help, help you let go. Yeah.
right? Maybe they were raped. Sorry to interrupt you. I might be talking too much. But like a lot of, especially men who are guilty of abusing children, almost, you know, I think this last study I read, 80 to 90% were abused as children themselves. Mm. So you have to ask yourself, like, is that just coincidence? Like they're not just all of a sudden choosing to do it. Part of their trauma and their inability to deal with it is affecting their future behavior. So if we could help people be more open with their trauma, I think we could we could ease some suffering. For sure. Do you find that there's an imbalance between how men and women deal with forgiveness with you, like your clients? <sighs> there's a difference amongst clients, okay. and it's you know I, not to generalize based on gender, but but and but genders. That, no, but but, just, but there's accuracy in yeah. in how gender genders can deal with it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, some may internalize it more, some may you know, start smashing things, right? Mm-hmm. Men generally kind of respond on a, in a more aggressive. And women just, so many of the women are like, oh, look, I'll just, I'll just take the burden. Like we all know those kind of moms or, mm-hmm. you know, who just like, and I'll just shoulder the burden. very vulnerable. Like the cases that you take on are, are more often than not someone who's... Yeah, there's a power really imbalance. Been, yeah, who's really been wrong. And the, yeah, like if you have like a, an alpha male or an alpha female who's mm-hmm. in a dispute with another alpha female, like they're not, that's not the context. Yeah. Like, should they be fighting in some cases? No. Should they get over themselves? Yes. But when we're talking in the context of representing victims or survivors, they are vulnerable. And, and then people, are, often people are like, well, how, I'm surprised that people, because I have this military background, they think I wouldn't be able to connect with them. And I, I think... I think I am because I've seen a lot of despair. Mm-hmm. And and I know that the solution is not just a, a simple solution. Just mm-hmm. hire my big firm and give me all this, yeah. you know. It's more like allow the person the opportunity to know that, that there's an option for them if mm-hmm. they want to walk down that path that mm-hmm. allows them to kind of to say, hey, you're not going to do this to me anymore. Mm-hmm. And then they know that they have somebody on their side who provides a little bit of protection because, you know, you have to have somebody who's not worried about like I don't care about my reputation when I'm when I'm representing somebody who needs help. It's just, but sometimes in law there's people who are like trying to pick cases. Yeah, you, you do know. it for the right reasons. Yeah, I don't want to make it like that. I I, I do it because I I also like it. Like yeah. I like taking on bullies, and I like I do like helping uh, people who have been screwed over. So have you ever dealt with a bully where you had to just remind him or her that you know maybe. You, you have made mistakes too, and you have to own up to them. Maybe it's as simple as asking for forgiveness. Or have you ever had a client who was struggling with a big mistake that they made? Say someone going through a divorce saying like, I know I made all these mistakes and I'm struggling with forgiving myself, mm. but while at the same time asking for what I deserve or... Hmm, that's interesting. Kind of a two-part question. So yeah. I've had clients that are we'll call them handfuls, yes. that come in and they present themselves as one thing. And then you, as you get to know them, you realize that actually uh, they're, they're, they're trying to bully somebody. Yeah. And it's clear in my firm that I'll just... Generally, there's cases where I've just fired them because I don't want that energy around mm-hmm. and I don't tolerate it. And then I just wish the other side had hired me. But, you know, I'll yeah. bring them in. Like I, Everybody here can attest how many times I've brought clients in and said, look, you, just, you need to admit to this, yeah. move forward. But when the ego is consumed with a perceived injustice, it's very hard to knock somebody off of it when they're angry. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't think I've ever really changed somebody's mind who is who is being a bully. I just usually tell them to, to leave. Mm-hmm. And then they put a complaint in against me. And, we'll see. Yeah. and then, uh, and then the, the last part of your question was... Um, self-forgiveness. Self-forgiveness. Someone... You know, I think everybody needs some self-forgiveness mm-hmm. at some point. And, you know, you asked in the context of family law... 
it's just difficult to yeah. leave a relationship uh, and everybody wants, some people want to blame themselves, some people want to blame others. Sometimes it's a combination. In the end, you know, the universe moves on and I just tell people, look, there's only the now. Let's just be a good person going forward. Mm-hmm. And um, I try to remove the, an element of greed or and I don't want people to use the law to hurt somebody they used yeah. to love. So. And on average, do you find that a bigger percentage of your family law clients are coming in out of hurt or out of just honestly wanting justice there's so many, they deserve. There's so many angles to family law, right? Because there are some people who have been in a bad relationship for a long time. They're kind of like they've been abused. So they come in and they want, they need to get out. So they're yes. initiating it. There's other people who want to get out because they've fallen in love with somebody else. So, you know, they're guilty, but they also want to get out. And then there's people who've come in who have been cheated on and then they just, they're full of anger. What do you tell someone like that? Who's been cheated yeah. on? I said that it's not a crime for people to fall out of love. You know, like love has to be real. And if somebody doesn't love you, don't try to force them to stay with you mm-hmm. or punish them for not loving you. Just understand. And how do they let go? It's very difficult when, because that's so fundamental to some people's yes. identity, right? And especially if there's been lying and everything. And it's not my place to go and say, hey, maybe, you know, you weren't the best partner because that's not my place. What I just want to say is like, look, generally people are happier if they go through a decent separation. If they have a high intensity fight, nobody's happy. But if you guys can ask as adults, separate. You're going to meet somebody else who values your, your inner spirit mm-hmm. and your love. Like, and, but there's also fear there mm-hmm. because that that thing that they identify with is leaving and now they're, they have a big gap mm-hmm. in them and, and they're worried it won't get filled. Yeah. Um, oh, an opportunity, like these challenges, when people come in and want to fight. Yes. You know, wh- you know why do you not just counsel them? You know, I give them an alternative. Or, yeah. or what I do is I provide context to the struggle that they're facing. Yeah. They come in and, and, and the struggle is defining them. I have been wronged. That's what defines them. I have yes. been wronged. And so there's a tendency. That's that, what you, defines them. Yeah. That's and so, so powerful. And so then there's a tendency that they want to be around people who support that definition. Yes. So friends who say, oh my God, that was so bad. He yeah. couldn't have done that. He, and yeah. it's just, it's a perpetual feeding of this ego that says I've been wronged. And then so there's something inside you wants, needs that to be fed. And so sometimes when people come in and see me, I'm like, look, I understand you've been wronged. But it's time to like stop feeding that part of you and start feeding the it's time for me to move yes. to the next step in my life. Because when I think I've said to you sometime in the past, favorite quote I got when I was uh, in a low spot uh, in an overseas operation, having lost some friends, was that sorrow carves out space in the soul for mm-hmm. character to reside. And so like if you don't experience <laughs> I need sorrow, like 10 seconds to let that sit. <laughs> yeah, like experiencing sorrow and suffering yeah. carves out space inside your soul for character mm-hmm. to come in there because there's nobody of, of high character who hasn't suffered generally. And so the suffering that the people are feeling is often a great opportunity just hidden in pain at the moment. Mm-hmm. And so if we can kind of start them on the path towards recognizing that this suffering is going to make them into a better person yeah. and take away some of the people who are saying poor you, poor you, this is wrong. And then start saying, hey, look, let's take a baby step towards you're going to be okay. Yes, because right. those people really can hurt you. Oh, they'll, can, they'll drown you. You continue getting stuck in that cycle of I've been wronged. I've yeah, been wronged, right? It's like walking around with an anchor on it. And you need yeah. somebody who can kind of just pull you up a bit and say, well, just baby steps towards saying, I've been wrong, but I'm going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Especially if I deal with it well. Yeah. If I deal with it well, I'm going to be an inspiration to other people. And I think you're a living example of being an inspiration to people. Uh, 
but you know, this, this happens yeah. at the micro level and the yeah, macro level every day. And, uh, but I don't think there's enough people who are, I think it takes a little bit of courage to look at somebody who, like if somebody comes in and they've been wronged and they want to hire me and they have money, if I yeah. keep telling them that they've been wronged, they're going to keep throwing me money. Yes. But I, I take pride in saying, look, I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. I'm yeah. going to tell you what I think will help you. Yes. And if you don't want to hire me, go somewhere else. Yeah. And I think that's what's kind of helped our law firm do, do quite well and uh, makes me yeah, kind it's, of... it's authentic, right? Like you're, yeah. not, you're not out to just have more clients. You're, like I keep saying, you're out yeah. to do the right thing. Yeah, like it, the job is fun. Mm -hmm. Like people talk bad about lawyers, but the job is fun when you're actually like making a difference. Yes. Not just making a salary. Yeah. So tell me about a moment when you experienced, how do I explain it? When you saw like human emotion in full raw form, that it just made you, even if you didn't really tear up, it just really hit you hard. No, I, to I told my daughter... My oldest daughter, she complains because she cries too easily, she says, when she gets upset, but she's just a wonderful she's human being. To me. <laughs> but she's a wonderful human being. Yeah. But when she gets frustrated, tears come, and that's associated with weakness. And um, it's interesting because, you know, having left the military and when I became a lawyer, uh, some of the lawyers made fun of me because I was probably the first person who would tear up when I'd hear a story. And I think because I'd become sensitive to how people aren't perfect. Yeah. And, uh, what would annoy, it would get me angry that I'd be in court and then I'd hear, even when I was a prosecutor, when I'd hear like somebody who was accused, but you know, for shoplifting, mm -hmm. when I'd hear them tell their story, you know, it would, it would hit me because I know that they're not perfect. Mm -hmm. And then it, that's probably why I left being a prosecutor because I didn't want to put these people in jail who had suffered. Yeah. But you know, hearing the raw emotion of what people go through, mm -hmm. you know, I think you can't really be a positive advocate unless you can really feel it. Yeah. So, you know, there are times in court where I'm getting teary-eyed mm -hmm. and it's embarrassing because judges <laughs> judges looking at me and the judge is like dead to the world because he's heard yeah. so much stuff they don't really you know yeah. so, some care but they don't really care <laughs> but i'm connected with the person and they're telling their story and i you know i just can't help but get you know i, I call it misty eye but you know yeah. I, get, I get watery eyed i'm trying to like put my head down and tell me I, about one story in particular in court it could be that shoplifter well, I had a, recently I had a, a client, it's not a big deal, but it was like last year, but mm -hmm. she, was a, she was a mom and a professional, but she became an alcoholic. Mm. She drove her kid, uh, she picked her kid up from school and got arrested. Mm. Just easy for everybody to yeah. pile on. Yes. Bad person, yes. bad, bad mom, mom. bad, yeah. bad. But you know, alcohol is a disease, and so it's not like you choose to do it. Like, and, uh, and she was gonna commit suicide, and she called me, and I went and met her at a Tim Hortons just on a, I, I would never generally do that, but I picked up the phone. She's like, I'm in a bad spot. I'm like, and I just met her there, and then I just looked at her, and she she wasn't admitting she was an alcoholic, and I'm like, you're an alcoholic, I can smell it on She's you. I said, you just endangered your kids, and she looked yeah. bad and rough, and I said, she said, do you have a car? And she's like, no, nobody will talk to me. I drove her to the hospital, had her checked in. She checked in for alcohol, and they held her for a few days because her body was so and she, she like she was a pretty professional lady. Yeah, she detoxed in the hospital, went to rehab. Uh, her husband had taken her kids. We delayed, um, she was gonna plead, I told her that she had to plead guilty, even though she didn't want to, because she wanted to drive, driving was part of her job. Yes. I said, no, you did it, you can plead guilty. Mm. Um, she went to rehab, it took a while, but then the day that she came in, she looked like a different person. Healthy, clean, vibrant, got her kids back. Mm -hmm. It's giving me shivers thinking about it again, but hearing her tell that story and apologize, like mm -hmm. I, was, I was essentially crying in court yeah. and that was my client, but uh, she got the lowest possible sentence and mm -hmm. you know, it, was a, it was a great example of mm -hmm. uh, 
being in tune with somebody. But I don't know if there was forgiveness there, but she had to forgive herself in order yes. to conquer alcoholism. Yes. And uh, But it worked out well. Now she has full custody of her child. I had goosebumps during the whole time that you were telling that story. But yeah, mm-hmm. everyday people will go through things where they just don't think I could go through this, mm-hmm. right? Like as an outsider looking in, it's easy to judge. Mm-hmm. Say, how could that mom have done that? Yeah. And then you don't know that you're capable of doing that until you do it yourself. Yeah. Right? And sometimes we're just fortunate that we turn right instead of left. Yeah. You know, but then we, we assign all good things that happen to us to our own stuff and all bad things that happen to us to somebody else. And yeah. That judgment area exists in law. Yes. And it's nice. Um, I did some work with First Nations community mm-hmm. and the First Nations reserves obviously have some issues with crime, but they have a, a sentencing circle. It's very different than what happens in in Canada. There's a judge and the judge is higher up looking down on the parties and you have to kind of plea for whatever. In the sentencing circle, they have far less. They're now reclaiming their own form of justice because their members are being taken into a Western court, Mm -hmm. right? Without any understanding of them. But in the sentencing circle, let's say there has been an assault where one guy beat up another guy. It's a circle. Yeah. Not one person standing up. And the members of the community are there and everybody gets to talk. About how it forget, and but this would be a re- this is what I have to set you up with. You have to go to one of these sentencing circles because it is about community forgiveness. It's yeah. about community forgiveness, and so everybody speaks, but then in the end, they all talk about how they can forgive, and then so it's not as much about saying you're wrong, you need to go to jail. It's yeah. more about, but you can see that it's really effective because you're, they're all connected. Yes, you should go. Yeah, we got to go see a sentencing yeah. circle because that really impacted me. We'll do that. We'll create a video to let people know about it too. Because I think it's enlightened justice, but some people think that's First Nations. It's not, but they haven't been able to do that Mm -hmm. for so many years, right? But because their community understands they need to all work together. And I just remember sitting there as a guest, I was helping one of the guys. And I just remember hearing from everybody and it was, it was just such the right thing to do for everybody just to talk about it. But then the the mother of the victim said, I knew that guy. He's a good boy. You know what I mean? Like it, it yeah. was just, it, it brought yeah. in what we're supposed to consider. Yeah. yeah. Not just like, you know, a prosecutor saying this person should go to jail and then, you know, it was really yeah. cool. How did that one end? It ended well. They forgave him. And actually the mom and the victim said, I forgive you. It was beautiful. Like I was getting misty there too. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, like it, yeah. it just, it's, it was, it was interesting, but that they, they forgave him. And I, and then the, the guy I was with, he was one of these three guys who engaged in bad behavior. He was crying. Yeah. You know, because it was forgiven. Do you feel that, I, I see sometimes when people, people have this misconception about forgiveness. They think that if I forgive someone, that means that what they did was okay. Yeah. Do you think in a case like this, that that person who, like in, the perpetrator, thought, oh, I got away with oh, it? Oh, God, no, no. No. No, right? no I, think, I think... Forgiveness is so powerful. It is because it's about understanding. And so if somebody understands you... Yeah. As like a, because think of it, like a, a 17, 18, 19 year old young man who didn't have a father who came in an abusive relationship. You know, we have white men sitting in courthouses judging them, saying, I would never do that, so you must be a bad person, right? Like, I, I had good parents and I almost got arrested many times, mm-hmm. right? I can only imagine if I grew up in a broken home with an abusive, you know, boyfriend of my drug addicted mom, yeah. you know, I, I, but I'm the same human, mm-hmm. right? I was fortunate. So, what that sentencing circle does is it acknowledges that the, often the young male, he acknowledges the consequences, but then it's like he's heard as well, right? And so I don't think he thinks he got off. I think he just better understands his actions, 
right? But if there's substance abuse, you know, sometimes that's temporary because if people are addicts, you know, that's what has to be dealt with. But yeah. no, I, I really love that experience. I love to see more of that. Uh, and even there's um, a couple of judges in Sarnia who go down to that court and I can tell they're transformed wow. by that experience. Yeah. Why do you think that judges in general, you were saying earlier, are not really emotional or they, do you think they well, have to be that way? Or has you know, time it, like... It, it depends on the human because there's some wonderful judges. Every human has its own angle, right? There are yeah. some judges who define themselves by being tough, and there are some judges who define themselves by being um, kind and compassionate. Uh, but the system is just so busy. You see it every day, right? You, maybe you can become a little bit robotic or, you know, or, or desensitized yeah. to, you know, another, what they would call a sob story, right? Yeah. And then they're just like, well, the people in the town are scared. This is just another sob story. Go to jail. But in the end, that type of punishment, like if you go to the Scandinavia, they have the, the lowest uh, rates of incarceration. So the, the smallest jail times, but they have the highest success rate of in recidivism, which means not committing another crime. So of all the countries in the world, Scandinavia has the best best results in having somebody commits a crime never committed again. And they have the, the, the smallest jail times. And we don't seem to be getting that, you know, especially in the US where it was all about mandatory minimums, you know, be yeah. tough on crime, tough on crime. So why do you think that Scandinavia is. I think they're just, I think they're an enlightened part of our world, right? Because they're more about the community, helping people. Uh, and and they just they just look at science. Like the yeah. science shows that if I take an 18 year old who's committed a crime and put him in a jail full of criminals, all he's gonna learn in that three year, uh, three years of tuition is how to, you know, how to be a hardened criminal. So why would I take an 18 year old? Because I wanna blame him? Like, it's just the worst place you could put an 18-year-old if you want them to come out and be a good place in society. Mm -hmm. I think they realize that. So that's why they, they go into you know, halfway houses or supervisions. There's, an, there's, there's a, a risk. But really, I think um, you know, Western society has become a little too linear. It's like good, bad, right? And, yeah, and, and, it, and it makes everybody feel good about themselves. And being yeah. tough on crime is you know, nobody loses political points for, for being tough on crime. Mm -hmm. Right, so every politician can say I'll be tougher on crime, which often means putting people who have addictions and mental health issues and young people mm -hmm. in jail. But we're just dehumanizing them. Like there are some people in every in every species and in every population, there are always going to be mutations that create violent people that can't be uh, rehabilitated. Mm -hmm. Those people we need to deal with, mm -hmm. right? And you're not going to rehabilitate like a serial rapist. Uh, you know, or somebody who has something wrong, like they, we need to be protected from them. And mm -hmm. I enjoyed putting them in jail years ago. Uh, we need to protect our children, right? But the vast majority of the people that are being put in jail, you know, they need, they need help. Yes. You know, not a cage. Mm -hmm. We were talking earlier about, like when we were talking about victims, about not defining yourself by what mm -hmm. happened to you. Do you also tell perpetrators not to define themselves. And we were talking earlier about First Nations, mm -hmm. that community circle. Do you feel that that's a form of telling the perpetrator also, just because you've made this mistake, it doesn't mean you define yourself by it for the rest of your life? Yeah, no, well, that, that's definitely helpful and necessary. It's just that a lot of the people who are, who are on the wrong side of that equation don't have positive role models, Yeah. right? Especially for young males. Right? There's just uh, your 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 community of listeners will probably know what I'm talking about, but like if you look at a 15, 16 year old boy, like they're functionally limited, 
in terms of their ability to, to deal with them, right? So in the past, they would grow into men because they would work with 18-year-old men, 24-year-old men, 35-year-old men, right? But what we do in our society today is we take 15-year-olds and we put them all in one class only with 15-year-olds and they only hang out with 15-year-old boys. Yeah. And their version of what is normal and right is not normal yeah. and right. And so they, they start to engage in this stupid behavior, yeah. right? They act tough. They, they, they yeah. think it's cool to knock stuff over. And then that grows with them. until And it's not until really they get out of university that they start actually interacting on a regular basis with men or positive yes. male. And imagine if some of those kids in school don't have dads who are present, right? So, you know, I don't want to blame them but I think they need better role models. And you know, it's one of, one of my goals at some point is to provide, uh, I'd love to have an outdoor camp up north, like a thousand acres, where I could take some of my veteran buddies and some of my, and then we could take a young boy, like teenage boys who don't have positive role models, bring them up and then you know, put them through obstacle courses, navigation, and have them kind of be exposed to good male role models. Yes. And then if they say, hey, I don't wanna go get wood for the fire, then you just say, <laughs> well, you're going to be cold tonight. Sunshine. Yeah. <laughs> Teach like, them responsibility. Yeah, if you don't get wood, you're cold. Like yeah. the world's not going to give everything yeah. to you. And that, that's a problem that a lot of people have is they just expect the world to give them everything. Yeah. So here's a good question for you that I just thought of. How do you draw the line between have, offering, providing good male role models for young males and teaching them patterns that align with toxic masculinity? Because I feel that a lot of times young boys learn that from it's a weird it's a weird world and this will probably be a podcast in it in itself because i'll have you as a guest on the next they say talks they say toxic masculinity nobody says toxic femininity yeah tell me about that well it's interesting right well yeah. this is identity politics and the left suffers greatly because everybody is fighting to be a victim there are like i see real victims right but everybody is watching tv waiting to be insulted right? Waiting for, you know, and they're missing the point, which is, you know, they should be out there doing good, not waiting to be insulted because somebody used the wrong word. And then the use of the word harms them. And, you know, our college and universities are infected with this helplessness. It's learned helplessness, right? That we can't come in and talk about slavery, or we can't even talk historically in an accurate way because somebody might be upset because of the toxic masculinity. The reality in our society is that today in our country, this is the best time in the history of the universe to be alive, mm -hmm. right? And, and yet you have people who are constantly victimized. You know, they, they can't get out of bed. Life is so hard, right? We have got to a point where people have healthcare, people have phones, they have roads, they have all of this stuff. More women are going to law school than men. More women are going to med school than men. Uh, so to me, the toxic masculinity, mm -hmm. you know, it came from a, it came, when people say that, I think they're talking about old gender roles. Right. Yeah. And, you know, if you go back 80 and years also, ago, like boys will be boys and boys don't cry and things like that. Yeah. And you have to acknowledge that this is actually, you know, the product of hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. Right. Like it's there are certain things that have helped us to get here. Each one of us, you and I mm -hmm. are the product of humans who survived. Right. Yes. So you're a direct line of ancestors. There's been millions that were eaten by saber toothed tigers or died of starvation. You are the product of successful humans. Uh, so there's behavior that's that hasn't caught up with modern society, let's say. Yes. Um, but you have young kids who are young boys who are pretending to be tough, but they're not tough. They play video games. You know what I mean? They say they say stupid words. They share stuff. 
is that toxic masculinity? No, I just think that's immaturity and a lack of confidence, right? And and I think some people have to be aware that this that there's this kind of um, liberal arts movement that says, you know, women just suffer. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, they do. But if you look at the, you know, the life expectancy, who's going to be killed in violence, you know, like men actually probably suffer more because they're idiots. Uh, <laughs> right. But if you're to go back 100 years, like men died you know, yeah. at, at higher rates, like they had, you know, they're the ones who'd go out and get killed in the masses. But it's just it's just. The challenge to me is, and we're getting away from the lies, how do you build... That's okay, because I think that this is still... How do we build young men? And I think it goes back to what power is. And yeah. so when I try and tell men, like, you need to be able to protect. Yeah. But being a bully is not powerful. All bullies I've met are insecure and weak. Now, is that toxic masculinity? No, I just think that it's weakness. Maybe it's toxic and they're men, right? But real kind of masculinity in, in, in what I consider to be... a. a you know, an honors, an honorable role is taking on responsibilities, not complaining, being the first to expose yourself to danger. Is that toxic, right? Like for these people who say toxic masculinity. So if somebody comes in with a gun, right? Should, should the guy push it? Like, should a female, like there's a role, like there's something about it that I think is honorable. And I, I don't even know how people date in some cases anymore because you can't seduce anybody. Like, and I'm not saying but you know, that, by like that being dance. charming, you mean? By, yeah, like that yeah, but you dance, can be char- so. you can be charming without. I see what you're saying. No, but there are, but there are like there are. I think a lot of the young men are just going to video games and and the internet because yeah. they're just they don't know where to stand. They don't know what to do, and they don't have good role models who can tell them, hey, like respectfulness, you know. But mm-hmm. uh, but you don't deny your masculinity, right? There's something cool about being a man. There's something cool about being a woman, or wherever you are on the spectrum. It's just about, I think it's more important to be honorable about it because females, in my experience, females for aggression, they don't use force, but females for aggression use words and rumors and gossip, yeah. right? They're, bo- they're both toxic. They can yeah. too, right? Yeah. But like, you know, but, but people general, attack, you know, it yeah. just, no, there, to me, there's always a spectrum and some, everybody Over, can overlap, yeah. but you know, like, you know, men usually react with violence, yeah. which is why they're the perpetrators of violence. And that mm-hmm. they need to be taught that's not the right way to react. Yes. And then often females will attack each other mm-hmm. much more harshly than, than men and, and, and more long lasting. Mm-hmm. And that's not, that's not good either, no. right? That's using so, so yeah. they both have to deal with it and just be honorable, but toxic masculinity, like, you know, football, you know, that looks like toxic masculinity, like we're throwing young men at each other and smashing their heads, creating brain injuries so that people, fat people in the stands can, can eat a hot dog and cheer. Like to me, that's not necessarily what we need to be teaching. But, you know, if you look at um, the Canadian MMA fighter, John Pierre, what was his name? Your listeners would know him, but he's a French Canadian guy who was an MMA, fight, MMA fighter. Okay. But if you listen to him speak, such a gentleman, right? Such an honorable guy. And, you know, he just... He probably can separate. Yeah, like he's he's fighting. Like that warrior spirit is still good. Like you know, yeah. it's it's nice to have some men who can protect, right? And then, but he was just honorable, right? Like he, he was humble. It was like it wasn't. Uh, but I think sports is is creating these guys who are pretending to be tougher than they are. And I think the lesson is that you become tough by actually suffering, by by serving other people. Mm-hmm. That's how you become tough and powerful is through service, not through yeah. posturing. Yes. I don't know. Hopefully I didn't ruin the, you <laughs> no. know, the vibe there. But. No, you didn't. Um, and we'll cut out whatever doesn't need to be in there anyway. <laughs> so I, I always define forgiveness as removing the power of the person who hurt you from over you. So it's not necessarily saying, it's not necessarily making 
sense of what they did or were justifying it in any way. It's just you, the person who hurt me, no longer have power over me. Mm -hmm. I'm forgiving you for me, not for you. Mm -hmm. So with this definition, tell me about a time that you had a client come in who thought that he or she was so, because you talk a lot about power imbalance, was so weak in the face of whoever the perpetrator was and where you had to remind them that by actually fighting legally, you could um, be actually forgiving this person because you are removing that power that they had and still have over you by saying, by, by screaming in their face and saying, not screaming, but saying, mm. I have a voice and you no longer can oppress me or mm. silence me. I haven't thought about it that way. It's interesting. I, I might not see it, I might not characterize it as forgiving them, but it's acknowledging them for who they really are. So like if you just allow them to abuse you, yeah. uh, you're not addressing them you're not actually seeing them, right? But when you step up and you say, look, you abused me, I can look at you. Yeah. Now I see you, right? I don't know if that's forgiveness, but it's, it's cool because you, I, I can see in, in clients, like when they step up, they're, they're worried, they're nervous legitimately. But as they kind of take that step up and they look at the person, you can see in the other person immediately, they step up and then something about the karma of the abuser, something just comes down a bit, right? And now that person is... Is, is, it's vulnerable, but yeah. that person now realizes that they're actually being seen. Yes. Right? They're not, yes. They don't have this fake. So, and I've literally seen it. I'm getting shivers where I've literally seen that, like as usually it's the woman or, the, or the, the male who's been abused. As they step up and they take that deep breath and speak, I'm always watching the perpetrator. And you can see them that they're just like, all of a sudden they're a bit deflated. They realize that now they're just being seen for who they are as a bully. Yeah. Right. And so is that forgiveness? I think it's just them saying, I'm just going to name yeah. you and what you are. And now you have to own it. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. then they come down because now they just realize they were just a, a yeah. bully. Right. Yeah. And then so does that allow, and that may allow for forgiveness, but I don't think it's forgiving to step up. I think by stepping up, you allow the next step to is to forgive yeah. because now you understand and they yeah. understand. The pain you caused me no longer controls me i'm coming from a place of strength instead mm -hmm. of coming from a place of pain and fear one last thing that you would tell any client who comes in who's struggling with forgiveness what's the most powerful thing you can tell them <sighs> struggling with forgiveness i think they're struggling with injustice for the most part yes. and forgiveness is part, part of, of getting it. to justice mm -hmm. and so that's maybe what that's maybe what i'll say yeah <laughs> it was good you're struggling with injustice yeah. forgiveness is the path to get to justice, but you know, you can. I could say the whole, you know, it's not your fault, da, 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 but I, what I just tell them is like, it doesn't have to be fixed today. Yeah. What people are telling you to do, you don't have to do, but you know, you have to find it in yourself, to, you know, to stand up, mm -hmm. you know, and then, and there's different ways to do it. And some people can do it right away, some people take six months, but stop beating themselves up about being in the position, mm -hmm. right? They're suffering because of what happened, but now that you're in this position where you want, some people just, they get anxiety about being in this position. They don't know what should I do here, here, yeah. here. And I just don't want them to have more anxiety. Well, thank you. This was great. If you would like to hear more of my poems, please download my audiobooks. You can listen to me read aloud to you. I'm Nejwa Zabian, and you've been listening to Stories of the Soul. If you haven't yet, 
Go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can follow me at Najwa Zabian on Instagram. If this episode resonated with you and you want to begin to reconstruct yourself, head to Soul Academy, my own digital school to help you let go, move on, and transform your life. Your demolition might not be in your hands, but your reconstruction is. I know you're ready to begin this process. Take the first step and head over to www.nejwasabian.com forward slash soul academy join me next week for another story of the soul thank you for listening